You're listening to Dedication Point, an oral history of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. This oral history project was produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership, working in close collaboration with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wild Lens Collective, and the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry. The series features 20 interviews produced with key figures in the history of the Snake River Canyon region. This is episode 19. Dr. Julie Heath is a professor in the Department of Biological Sciences and the Raptor Research Center at Boise State University. Her research lab is focused on addressing questions about how birds respond to large-scale environmental change, and she has conducted numerous research projects within the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey NCA, working with a number of other researchers and graduate students. This research has documented how raptors are responding to some of the dramatic environmental changes going on within the NCA and the surrounding area. My name is Julie Heath. I'm a professor at Boise State University in the Department of Biological Sciences. And I um, conduct research in the Birds of Prey area. Uh, Well, I first learned about the Birds of Prey area when I was an undergraduate at the University of California at Davis, and I was taking a class in raptor ecology. And we were learning about relationships between Birds of Prey and their habitats and learned about the NCA as a special place where there's a high density of Birds of Prey. And so I was very excited to come to visit Boise and go to the Birds of Prey area to see uh, what it was like. So at what point did you, you you came here um, to do uh, master's research? I did, I came in 1993 to uh, work in the Raptor program, uh, the Raptor Biology Graduate Program at Boise State to work with Al Dufty. And uh, I was very interested in hormonal control of bird behavior and we looked for types of projects associated with you know, bird movement behavior, and I ended up working um, with American kestrels to look at hormones associated with movement of kestrels. But at the same time, um, of course, in the graduate student community, I was fortunate enough to go out with lots of other students that were working more uh, connecting the work within the NCA. So that a lot of my research was outside of the NCA, um, but still relevant in many ways. Um, and so I got to go out and see um, people working with burrowing owls, go out and work with phrygianus hawks, um, great horned owls, short-eared owls, all kinds of northern sawwood owls, lots of great research. And at the same time, that was when the guard study was going on. And so um, the, there was a large cruise working with prairie falcons, and um, it was just a really fun and exciting time to be around. Uh, with sort of the breadth of research that's happening. You know, Neil Paprocki's project was within the NCAA, and that was that was the first project conducted for my lab where we, it was completely within the Birds of Prey area. Okay. And so that project was looking at the wintering ecology of raptors um, with the goal of understanding the context of the NCAA within the larger sort of western U.S. Um, for providing wintering habitat for raptors. 
which is really important because uh, winter is a time of high mortality in birds of prey. And so having good wintering habitat um, often predicts survival, which is key for um, uh, demographic and population uh, persistence for birds. There was a meeting in 2007 or 2008 where the BLM asked people to get together to make uh, management recommendation for birds of prey and monitoring recommendations. 2008 raptor workshop. Yeah, it was 2008. Mm -hmm. And I went to that, and one of the things that's very true about this area is there's lots of raptor biologists, and I was a new professor, and I listened to what everybody else was interested in and picked something that no one else was working on on purpose. So I picked winter, because that seemed to be a part of the ecology that was everyone was focusing on more of the breeding system. And there had been, um, during the guard study, a, um, a really nice project using point counts for birds of prey. And um, at the time it was conducted, it was, it was a good study, but one of the problems was we just didn't have the analytics to accompany that sort of approach for working with birds of prey research. Because um, if you go and do a point count for raptors, uh, they're really easy to see, but they move such big distances, they're not always available with, for the person to see. And so you need to kind of cope with, you know, what, what's going on with that, and you can do that analytically. And so in 2008, uh, we could repeat that study and use hierarchical models and contemporary analysis approaches to account for that issue and kind of do, um, and get at sort of the habitat associations of the birds um, in that approach. And so I wrote a proposal to repeat that research, and it was funded. And um, a graduate student had been contacting me uh, looking for a project, and so he seemed like a good fit. And so I asked Neil to come to Boise State, and he conducted that field work. And, um, you know, our, going into the work, our a priori idea was that because habitat had been degraded over time, there'd be fewer raptors. Um, but, you know, really early on, we thought, holy cow, there's a lot of raptors here in the wintertime. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, that went really quickly. We started developing some alternative hypotheses about what might drive raptor densities in the winter in the birds of prey area. And so we were interested in sort of a regional context for that project. And so that's when uh, we decided to broaden the scope of the project to include Christmas bird count data for all of Western North America and look for shifts in wintering distributions. And so um, those are sort of the two outcomes from that project was the work showing habitat associations of wintering raptors and how that's changed over time and how wintering distributions of raptors have shifted in Western North America you were expecting that raptor densities would be lower across the board, right? Because there had been, uh, because the habitat had, had degraded over the course of this span of time since the initial research was conducted, right? Well, it was thought it had degraded. It definitely changed, okay? okay? And so, you know, it was no longer sort of this, this shrub system. It was much more, you know, this invasive cheatgrass system. And so... Um, you know, the quality of the habitat is probably relevant somewhat to the season that we're talking about, but for the winter, we assume that there was some evidence that's maybe not as good for the breeding season, so probably not as good also in winter when um, it's very important that birds have access to that prey for that, 
you know, the energy of coping with harsh environmental conditions. So requiring good habitat in the winter, um, you know, goes hand in hand with having a big constraint of having harsh conditions that you have to overcome. Um, however, if those harsh conditions are getting easier to, to deal with, then the quality of habitat that you need to survive over winter can go down a little, right? So um, there's a trade-off, right, between harsh conditions and quality of habitat probably or prey. And so when we started, um, that's why we started looking at sort of like these bigger drivers of um, energetic expense in the winter. And so, so you're talking about climate change, right? Right. So um, we had been doing some other work where we were looking at uh, climate change effects on birds of prey and had noticed, you know, as uh, many other studies have shown, especially in the West, the one of the first um, climate variables that changes is minimum temperature rises because of the greenhouse effect. And so uh, temperatures overnight do not cool down as much as they... Um, had in the past because of greenhouse gases that trap the heat from the day. So minimum temperatures are one of the first metrics to rise. And um, that's l more likely to happen in areas that are dry um, because carbon dioxide is having such a huge contribution versus, say, something like water vapor, where they've always had that greenhouse uh, layer, right? So we're dry and it's winter and it's warmer. And so that all fits hand in hand with what we would think what happened in southern Idaho. And uh, with that also came decreased snow cover. And so those two changes, we thought that winters are probably less harsh than they used to be. That necessitated sort of broadening the scope of the research, right? Because we're like, oh, this isn't something that's just happening in this NCA, right? Like we're probably like the shifts that you were seeing, whatever changes like might be the cause of like a much larger, like broader trend in raptor distribution during the winter, right? Yeah, I think it, you know it's important to remember. Um, while we focus a lot on the breeding birds that were, are within the NCA, and that tends to, you know, a lot of those birds are resident um, animals. The context of the NCA and sort of the whole annual cycle and regionally is important, and so. Um, that's when we said, well, you know, when another hypothesis could have been that conditions had changed so much in the breeding season that there's just lots of young being produced and that that was, you know, filling up the NCA with those resident birds. Although um, that's probably a, um, that hypothesis was probably least not as likely as sort of shifts in where birds were spending the winter because there's. Um, a lot of advantages for birds to winter close to where they're going to breed. And so the sort of northern shift that would center it right on the NCA um, seemed more likely than a lot of young being produced that were being wintering close to where they were hatched. Um, that's, that's not as recorded as much as um, trying to winter as close to the breeding area. Sure. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, let's like talk about the results, right? Like what, what, what came out of this? Like what did, you know, what did the surveys show and what conclusions did you reach like through the analysis of those results? Um, well, the first conclusion that we reached was that um, indeed many birds of prey are shifting their wintering distribution north during the winter, um, probably because winter conditions and climates are getting 
um, better or less harsh. And so um, they can tolerate wintering at a um, place that's further north. And the other thing I think that's interesting to think about in that paper, which is not necessarily related so much in the NCA at this point, but you can imagine if you're the manager of um, a site uh, in Arizona or Southern California, and you start having declines in your wintering population of birds, and uh, you know you start to think, oh, I need to change my management of what I'm doing. Well, um, if that decline is truly attributable to something, some sort of threat on your property, yes. But if that decline is due to the fact that birds are no longer just coming that far south to spend the winter, there's nothing you can do management-wise that's going to bring those birds that far south again. And so understanding management or population trends in the context of changing distributions is really important so you're not spending sort of this, this futile attempt to always be, be doing adaptive management when perhaps it's not your, the management that's the causative effect of population change. Um, so that had a pretty interesting result. And then uh, the other thing I think that's interesting is we found that the, the, the relationship between birds of prey and their habitats within the NCA in the winter had changed for some species but not others. And essentially it looked like a lot of um, animals that we kind of had thought generalists and specialists like that, that wasn't necessarily predictive of who shifted and who didn't. And so there were some animals that had shown uh, in, the, in the previous work had shown high selection for shrub, and now they were tolerating wintering in grassland. And again, whether that's because sort of the, their stressors from the, the harsh winter climate were, you know, alleviated a little or because uh, that's just what was there, it's hard to know. That would require further work, but... <clears throat> essentially the other message that kind of came from that is even though the habitat had changed extensively it was still really a key spot for winter for raptors to spend the winter and so that was kind of one of my first sort of glimpses into the concept that even though the NCA has changed a lot um, it's not necessarily you know um, the, the some of the ability of the animals within the NCA to respond um, aren't known yet. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. Um, but I mean, as far as just like like raw density numbers, significantly. Mm, no, for some density? species it was, you know, like for kestrels, you never saw them in the winter. And the first uh, time this was done in the early '90s. And, you know, they had increased something like 28-fold or something just because it was like one or two versus, you know, 30. And wow. so, you know, that's a huge increase. Mm -hmm. um, so that's not to be necessarily misinterpreted, again, that populations are increasing, but perhaps where they're spending their time is changing, right? right? Um, and so I think also harriers were much higher. At least for certain species, there were significantly higher densities, mm -hmm. which doesn't necessarily mean that the population is increasing, but it does mean that they're shifting, like, where they spend their time in the winter, right? Um, whether they were shifting or the population was changing was kind of done more on the regional uh, level, because it's right. really hard to do that, like, within the NCA. Right. Within the NCA, you know, there are pop many populations were higher, and I think that speaks, again, it's not so much about, like, the a mechanistic relationship between the NCA and that species, but 
uh, that species is, um, the NCA is providing enough for that species to kind of cope and be in that the region during the winter. So, like, would you say that um, because of these uh, big picture sort of global, like, changes, like changes in the climate that are occurring, Mm -hmm. like, have those changes made the NCA, the area within the NCA, like, more important for raptors, at least in the winter, than they used to be? Yes. So... Um, you know, now for many species, the essentially the latitude where there's the densest population of wintering birds is essentially the latitude of the NCA. And the elevation of the NCA makes it very habitable for the winter. And so, yes, it's become a key wintering site, I would say. It's like, that's really fascinating to me, right? Because it's like this area was established, like it was set aside, like in 1971 as a natural area, like because raptor densities were so high here and it was identified back then as this crucial piece of habitat for raptors for breeding raptors right for sure um but like this research shows that because of climate change and possibly other factors it's actually become more important habitat in the winter in the winter at least Mm -hmm. for raptors Mm -hmm. which is really fascinating yes and that's like just kind of by chance, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, it's not by chance, right? Mm-hmm. It's because of like all these complicated global things that mm-hmm. are happening, right? Right. Um, but it's it's a super interesting result. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, I mean, obviously, this study was looking at like wintering raptors, like, and y- you mentioned that you know you chose that as like a a, f- a focus. Um, a research focus because fewer people were looking at the importance of this habitat for um, in in the winter time. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also I um, like wintering ecology. I think it's cool. Well, yeah. sure. So it was like a good a twofer. <laughs> so uh, I, I mean, has has that type of research like do we know if the same thing is happening during the breeding season? Uh, well, actually, um, there's a project in my lab working on that right now about shifts in breeding distributions. Um, But one of the other interesting things I didn't talk about that came out of this and is coming out of the breeding work Mm. is that several of the species where the NCA is is an important spot are really poorly captured by any monitoring metric. Okay, so um, prairie falcons are very difficult to monitor by any metric um, that sort of like can happen in a sort of widespread citizen scientist effort like um, the Christmas bird count or um, breeding bird survey. Um, so actually I'm going to, I'm kind of mixing messages here, but let's see. So in the winter we found that, um, you know, rough-legged hawks were shifting their distribution, but we could only get a glimpse of that because essentially the northern part of their wintering distribution isn't covered by Christmas bird counts. And so what we're seeing now in the breeding distribution shifts is that we can't really address the questions using the type of data we're using with golden eagles or prairie falcons. That would be a more complex, there's lots of reasons that's a little bit more complex to answer um, than the wintering, interestingly enough. Um, So I can speak to eagles and they're 
occupancy um, has declined. The occupancy of breeding territories has declined. And then it plateaued for a while, and now it's declining again. So the last two years have seen the lowest occupancy that we've ever seen and um, very low number of young produced per year than we've ever seen. So I think, if anything, probably breeding populations might be declining. I, I definitely want to talk about golden eagles next. Okay. Um, and, I mean, maybe you can just, like, start from the beginning and, like, where, you know, the the, the interest in... Um, you know, that particular study came from? How was that in, in, initiated? And like, what were your sort of early thoughts? And, and you know, what were you expecting to find? Uh, well, I started working with eagles because an old friend of mine from graduate program who was a biologist with the Bureau of Land Management, um, Jason Sutter, approached me about doing research looking at recreational disturbance in golden eagles in the Oahis. And so we planned a project um, for that that research and um, at the same time so that sort of uh, was one of the starting points for collaborating with uh, Mike Cokert and Karen Steenhoff and so um, we brought in Rob Spall to do that project and um, he was working in the Oahis but through working with Mike and Karen which who was interested, they were both interested in seeing the recreation research happen, but they had also been very curious to follow up on their research, um, looking at the effects of prey and golden eagle reproduction in the NCA. So Mike asked if I was interested in writing a proposal. I had been talking with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and working with Matt Stuber about um, results from the disturbance work. Matt Stuber, who is also a raptor biology graduate student at Boise State, and so that was on a, a common network among many of these projects, is that um, many graduate students had done work either for their own graduate work in the NCA or had gone on to have careers where they were contributing to the science of the NCA. And so that kind of creates a nice um, cohort of people to be um, you know, talking to and asking questions of. And so... Matt was very interested in having some of the disturbance research um, for the Western Golden Eagle Working Group that was going on. And uh, we, Mike Cokert and I approached Matt about an interest in understanding how Golden Eagles might cope with the fact that there are less jackrabbits in the NCA. And so that's how we put together um, that proposal. And it was funded. And so... We uh, worked to replicate another historical study um, by visiting golden eagle nests uh, every four days and collecting prey remains and pellets and look, recording what the birds were eating. And then we also, in some um, nests, we developed a method for installing cameras to record what the birds were eating. Um, we learned that the birds were eating um, birds. They were eating ducks, uh, like mallards and coots, and uh, they still many many of them were still also eating jackrabbits and cottontails and marmots. So the other thing that I learned is that eagles are incredibly individualistic, and so if you're studying, um, you know, twelve different eagle pairs, they have twelve different properties of their diet, which is just fascinating. It's really tough to get a sort of normal bell curve out of your data. It's very 
different for each pair. Mm. And um, although that and I would almost say I'm very curious about doing work looking at cultural transmission of diet either between pair between mates or to neighbors and so I think whether it's sort of um, the happenstance of sort of being on the river and so going towards a sort of dense um, resource of, of mallards and coots or whether it's sort of this linear habitat that facilitates seeing other eagles taking uh, you know, mallards are cute coots would be a really interesting research question to get at. I mean, I think, you know, being a long-lived species, um, you know, the ability to learn might be part of its biology. And also, um, I think, also maybe its cosmopolitan range might require that sort of generality in its diet to almost be inherent. And so it could have just come from the slice of time when many t- people were doing diet studies that we kind of framed this specialist in jackrabbit um, concept because they definitely eat everything from we saw warblers to deer you know I mean across the board fish yeah uh, snakes so in the Wahis right now we're going through data and it's just snakes and so um, yeah it's been very eye-opening to see what they can survive on Um, although I said that but I'll say this one other result that we have, and that is that um, although diet diversity has gone up, the proportion of jackrabbits in the diet is still predictive of the number of young breeding pairs produce. And so that means that there's still something about jackrabbits um, that is important. And, you know, off the bat, you might think, oh, you know, the sort of optimal foraging theory and thinking about like, you know, how much does it cost to capture it and what is the feedback and well, it's so rich, but you know, honestly, a coot and mallard, they're not so much, you know, those are some rich resources that are fairly probably easy to take, marmots, similar. And so, you know, what is it that we see this little porid relationship with eagles and then in some areas and of course, uh, ground squirrels and others. And, you know, what is it about those prey in particular that seem to <clears throat> really be what they focus on if they can? Why is that preferred? Okay, so just a point of clarification. Like, so in the previous research that you were comparing the new data to, there was there was not this level of diversity in the diet at all? Um, or just it, not to the same extent? Uh, it was... Uh, it varied from year to year, right? And so in high jackrabbit years, there was very little diversity. And in low jackrabbit years, there was um, more diversity, which you would expect, right? So they're sort of selecting preferred prey when it's high and selecting more diverse diet when it's low. Um, now, unfortunately, when, at the time we did the, the diet study, we didn't have an index of raptor or, excuse me, and leporid population at that time but there's anecdotal um, evidence that in the second year jackrabbits were higher they were more commonly seen when people went out into the field they're more often recorded in field notes um, than in the first year and so people thought in general this is a high jackrabbit year we saw absolutely zero response um, between years in what birds were eating 
So that yes, the other thing that was goes back to that sort of individual thing. Um, you know, from one year to the next, even if there were differences in jackrabbits, um, there were no change within a pair of what they were eating. So that was kind of interesting. We do see the greater diversity across all and fewer jackrabbits across all birds in areas that have been burned. So there's a, a much larger trend, right? I mean, there's variation in the number of jackrabbits in each individual year, but then there's a much larger trend of declines in jackrabbit populations mm-hmm. like within the NCA, right? Well, we don't know. Or you don't know that, right? I mean, it's... It's, it's anecdotal, right? Yeah, it's yeah. all... Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's maybe anecdotal, but it also might be, like, incredibly obvious, right? And so I, I'm not sure which one it is. <laughs> you know, we yeah. have... Um, what we don't have... Um, so the um, Army Guard has been doing... Continues to do distance um, transects at night, uh, driving transcripts for jackrabbits. Um, but those data haven't been analyzed. And then we've been doing uh, pellet plots for the past two years. And uh, those are showing um, essentially areas that are high in jackrabbits and low in jackrabbits. But of course, what can you say with just such few years of data? Not very much for trends. Right, right. But I mean, what if we, you know, like looking out outside of the NCA, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, like as sagebrush habitat declines because of fire, right? Uh, I mean, in general, like that's typically correlated with declines in jackrabbit populations, right? Yes. Um, And in other areas, there have been corresponding declines in golden eagle populations, right? Um, I mean, sort, sort of what I'm getting at here, right, is like, you know, again, like sort of the, the line of questioning before on the, the, the other, um, like the winter range research, like what makes the NCA unique, right? Um, like in this, in this area, like uh, this canyon where they nest, like they've been able to shift their prey base. Like, um, but in other areas, like that might be more difficult because maybe there aren't like ducks around or coots for them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, the shift in the diet hasn't been recorded in many of the other long-term field sites. Um, in some of the long-term field sites, the rabbits are still cycling and the eels do well and do poorly based on that. And so there's sort of the spoon-bust approach or, or the spoon-bust pattern. Um, in other areas, most other areas, they haven't switched to sort of what we're seeing in the NCA. The NCA might be special in, in that uh, it's maybe one of the leaders in a study system that is being affected by um, habitat change and human use of the area. At a, they might be sort of on the cutting edge of that sort of science. And so um, <clears throat> we see that uh, the eagles not only have switched to ducks, but they've also switched to pigeons, which... Uh, leads to them being infected with a protozoan that causes a disease that has a high rate of mortality. And so that's something that's uh, at the rate that we see it in the NCA is higher compared to other sites in the West. And so that um, is something that's unique about the NCA. So they're shifting their prey base, which is like maybe good if they're just eating ducks, but can lead to problems once they switch to pigeons. Mm-hmm. Interesting. 
And so you you mentioned that in the past couple of years we've seen declines in the nesting population uh-huh. of golden eagles. Right. It, it is, and in fact, those data are, um, haven't been analyzed. They're yeah. sort of annual um, snapshots uh-huh. of what's going on, and so there's a planned project where we're doing sort of time analysis of those data to look at the trends more closely. Uh-huh. But um, in general, the t- proportion of territories that are occupied has gone down, although not always in a steady decline, mm-hmm. right? And um, yeah, I guess what I'm wondering is is like is there a, 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 a you know a connection, a correlation, or like a causal relationship between the shift in prey base and declines in golden eagles in the NCA? Um, what one of the first big steps of decline downwards was after major fires that changed and altered the landscape. And so at that time, you know, Mike and his colleagues proposed that one of the major um, ways the eagles coped with that is subsuming neighboring territories, which would essentially decrease the capacity for the NCA to, you know, house eagle pairs. And so that change in habitat led to differences in behavior by eagles, which led to differences in capacities for eagle pairs. Whether that's still what the type of, you know, landscape system that eagles need to survive, I don't know. But um, it could be that the types of threats that eagles have been experiencing over time have kind of been consistently linked to habitat, or it could be that that was one sort of step moment where eagles declined and then they were kind of holding steady. And then I suspect that we're in another period where we will see declines happen again because of the shift in diet leading to disease. And then also because of the Mexican chicken bugs that are within the nest. These are parasites that affect the health of offspring. And so, um, you know, if there's any phylopatry, uh, then that would lead to decreased recruitment into the NCA. One of the things I I get out of this, and, and I think a lot of people would get out of, you know, listening to this conversation is that, like, you know, in order to answer, like, this very general question of, like, how are raptors doing in this national conservation area that was set aside specifically to protect them, right? Mm-hmm. And try, like... It's complicated, <laughs> right? There's no easy answer. I think we'd have a lot easier time answering if we had more information about how raptors were doing. Mm-hmm. We have some information about how eagles are doing, um, and we're getting new. We have some information about how burrowing owls are doing. Mm-hmm. We're getting new information about how frisionous hawks are doing, and perhaps new information about how prairie falcons are doing. But you know, it's been the level of science and monitoring that's needed to sustain. The conservation area um, probably hasn't been there and because of that it's really difficult to make generalizing statements about the status of the birds in the breeding season mm-hmm. and that's an that's that's an important point right I mean a lot of the you know these these two specific studies that you mentioned you're replicating research that was done in the past to see you know to try to figure out what kind of changes occurred um, and those studies done in the past had different funding streams, right, than, than the current st- studies. And, and often, you know, um, it's like back in the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s, there were a lot of studies funded by the BLM or by the, the National Guard. Um, 
and it seems like that funding isn't there and it like BSU researchers sort BSU researchers are sort of like picking up the ball. I mean, does that does that seem accurate? Um, well, our research uh, funding has come from the Bureau of Land Management and also okay. from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, and also Boise State. So it makes for a nice partnership when um, we can provide human power um, and they can provide funds for vehicles and technicians. And when you put the two of those together, it creates a, you know, a good, a good partnership. Um, yeah, I, th I think that, um, I'm, I'm not sure I would point to a necessarily a, an, an agency. Um, I mean, all of our local partners are incredibly dedicated and interested in making sure that um, the work gets done and they're doing everything they can to either cover it themselves or make sure that we can get resources to cover it. But, you know, maybe on a sort of more national level, um, it's challenging to, um, you know, have the values align with that need. Right. I, I want to talk about some of the the management implications of like the research you've done and, and the research that, that is going on in the NCA currently. And, you know, uh, w when we were talking about, you know, you had a few sort of specific like, like management based conclusions that you said you walked away uh, from um, the, the winter range study with. Um, I mean, is there, is there anything else that you can point to maybe anything like related to this, to the to golden Eagle, like, prey-based study or any of the other sort of ongoing research that you're involved with or other folks uh, uh, from BSU are involved with that, like, have clear management implications? Actually, I think the first thing I've learned in working at the NCA is um, because there was a time of rich funding and rich research and high knowledge generation, um, that perspectives from that time sometimes can be a little overweighted in how the system works. And we need to keep our mind open to how the NCA works and not sort of get stuck in the, in the slice of when the bias of when the research was done. And what that means is that perhaps, uh, you know, eagles can eat things aside from jackrabbits and be okay. Perhaps there are other threats that we need to be thinking about, like lead and parasites and disease and disturbance. Um, that we maybe weren't a concern in the early 90s. And, um, you know, maybe even ground squirrel populations are something we should be thinking about instead of just saying, well, that's something that blankets the NCA and it's not something to be concerned about. And so to me, that's always what I'm learning in the NCA is that it's such a beautiful uh, gift to have the historical information to contrast new information against. Um, but what I'm always often seeing in those contrasts is it's not the same. And some of the ways that we thought the system might change aren't true, and some of it's worse than what we thought it would be. And so it's really important to make sure that we keep our mind open about how the system works. So I don't know if that counts as a management recommendation. I mean, I think if you wanted to talk about, um, I think that, uh, you know, aside from the increased science and monitoring that needs to happen, there needs to be a more extensive study done on the effects of these parasites that affect cliff nesting birds than, um, than is happening right now. I mean, we found huge impacts on eagles. They're one of many species that are on the cliffs. And I can <clears throat> only assume that, 
you know, barn owls and prairie falcons, uh, which is where the work was first done in, this, in these parasites, are also suffering. And uh, red tails and everything else, kestrels that are in those cliffs are being hit by these, this parasite. And so, um, you know, so I, say, I think there's a few research needs. I also think that um, one of the work that probably your guys' group is doing and part of the partnership is starting to increase the local valuation of the land as being, um, you know, a neighborhood gem and sort of understanding um, how important that is and respecting that um, and sort of having some value with that. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you most concerned about looking into the future of the NCA? My, my main concern is being slow to respond um, to some of the signals that we are already starting to receive about the effects of human recreation in the NCA, um, and specifically probably shooting, and what that means for scavenger populations, um, what that means and how that interacts with landscape change, and then how that interacts with um, habitat, including prey, on the predator system, which can lead to susceptibility to disease and parasites. So essentially, I'm concerned that the whole place becomes a dirt field full of crows and pigeons. I think this is an incredibly important question for one for our organization, what do we pursue as a, a group that supports management and, mm-hmm. uh, and the BLM and managing the system um, and how we decide what we want to look at, but also as someone that moved to Idaho to work in this place and fell in love with it and wants to see it be this unique NCA for a long time, like people that are on the ground doing research and have a good you know, finger on the pulse of what's happening, I think this is a super important question and I would rather get an honest, very straightforward answer and have something to, to push for in the future than to get a whitewashed answer that doesn't push us in a good direction. Okay, my first one my answer is probably the right one. My second answer is probably my more like Boisean one, right? The one about the dirt field, right? I don't, you know, and maybe those are important to split apart a little bit, sort of science-wise, uh, the thread versus sort of like emotionally. Right. Yeah. When uh, our partners at the BLM are in a tough spot because they're mandated for multi-use and it's hard to balance those multiple uses. Um, I think in an area that's part of the national conservation landscape um, that's dedicated for a specific set of species, that that should be the management focus. Um, hey, let's protect the birds of prey NCA and, and make sure we're monitoring birds of prey. There are other places to extract and shoot and ride OHVs. Um, there's not a lot of other places that support the density of raptors that this place does. So while they need to manage for mixed use, I think this is a special spot and it's got a special designation and that should afford it some special management. I mean, I think there's a culture of, of managing for multiple use, but I don't necessarily know that that's the the regs of the NCA. I also think that 
shooting can, I think all those things can still happen, but they have to happen um, with some boundaries and there's just none. It's the area is changing, right? Like lots of different things. It, it's like we're going through a period of significant change. Climate change is a big part of that. Um, the system is changing and we don't fully understand all the ways in which it is changing, which indicates that there is like an even higher need for research than there ever has been in the area in order to like just understand what's happening to all these raptor species, but also the ecosystem as a whole. Um, and like there's not there's not enough, like there aren't enough research projects going on to fully understand everything that's going on at this moment. So how do you even make the management decisions if you don't even fully understand the change that's taking place, right? And like, so the concern would be that like, you know, something, you know, like a really dramatic change takes place that leads to like a crash in uh, a raptor population and, you know, like we miss it, right? Yes, right. So the limiting factors of the NCA were identified in the 1990s, and it's, you know, 30 years later. Are those limiting factors still the same ones? Right. Right. I mean, that's another important question that um, that we have, haven't even really considered, right? Because, yeah, like the boundaries of that NCA were established based on the habitat requirements of the prairie falcon. Mm-hmm. Like those habitat requirements may have changed because the habitat is changing Mm -hmm. and it may no longer represent you know i mean this this is one of the things that has come up over and over again as we dig into the history Mm -hmm. of the establishment of this nca is one of the things that makes it so unique is that the boundaries of the protected area itself were based upon science and based upon the habitat requirements of a specific species the prairie falcon um, and that's not common, right? And I mean, this, you know, uh, the interview that we did with uh, Dean Bibles, I mean, he was the, what, the district manager of the BLM um, at the time in 1980 when, like, the withdrawal occurred. So when they, like, mm-hmm. essentially created the, 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 you know, the current boundary of the NCA, even though it wasn't established as an NCA yet, like, that's when that boundary was created, and he was involved in this whole the whole administrative withdrawal process working with Cecil Andrus. And so he played this really key role in, in the history of the NCA and in establishing the current boundaries. Um, and then he went on to, uh, like, work for the UN and uh, became, like, a consultant and visited all these protected areas all over the globe. Mm-hmm. And he came back and told us, like, there is no other protected area on the planet that was established in this way where the boundaries of the protected area were based upon the habitat requirements of a specific species. Hmm. It's never been done anywhere else in the world, right? But what you're saying, like, adds an interesting twist to it mm-hmm. because those habitat requirements are changing. It's, it's interesting because it's like, oh, this is so unique and, like, we should you know, recognize that we have this special place and it's not like anywhere, any other protected area on the planet. Um, but there's no recognition that those, the habitats all, it's, everything's changing. The habitat's changing and most likely like the prairie falcons are doing things differently than they were 20, 30 years ago. Um, and like, you know, in order to, 
in order for that to continue to be true, <laughs> like that the boundaries are based upon the habitat requirements of the species that it was intended to protect, like you have to have the boundary has to constantly change, <laughs> right? Or it has to, you have to think about the porosity of the boundary, right? So if you mm. set a boundary, but then let everything in, it's not really a true boundary, mm. um, including new parasites and lots of mo new more people. Right. So yeah, I think that that's a, you know, it's great that it has that distinction of having this evidence-based um, approach to setting the boundary, but the boundary has to be meaningful and has to be updated. Yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. The parasite issue is interesting. Um, I mean, why are we seeing, I mean, th th it sounds like this is something that, that wa ha wasn't documented in past studies. Is that true? There were documentations okay. of, so this is a, um, this is a blood-sucking parasite that lives in nest material that comes up and feeds on the young uh, eagles and perhaps some of the adults too if they're in the nest. Um, it's in the family Simicidae, which is the bed bug family. Uh, there were some samples taken in the early 70s that were called, uh, from eagle nests that were called human bed bugs. And they, then um, they were, by the field researchers, they were recorded as, um, you know, sort of critters in the nest, bugs in the nest, sort of informally. Um, but those samples that were taken that were sent to an entomologist were categorized as human bed bugs, not American chicken bugs. And the first paper published on, um, or sorry, Mexican chicken bugs, the first paper published on that was in 1993 by... Uh, Mary McFadden and John Marsloff saying, you know, this is the more the northernmost um, discovery of this species in the NCA. And so that got through review um, uh, in the, I think, American Entomologists and Journal. And so, um, you know, I, I have a tendency to either think, well, there was something else and then there was this, this one, or... Um, the prevalence of it may has also increased, as in several. Uh, so there's many other nest parasites that have been shown to, as we have warmer winters, have higher overwinter survival. And so their effect in the breeding season is greater. And so this kind of goes back hand in hand with that winter work, right? So if we don't have cold winters anymore and these um, bugs are... Uh, hibernating in the nesting material on the cliff or in the cliff in the rocks and they have a high, higher survival rate that means there's more of them to go out and infest the young and um, you know we have some footage right now of cameras taking images of eagles at night and they are just covered uh, with their feet uh, in these in these bugs and it almost appears I mean, it's difficult to tell because the cameras are motion activated, but it almost appears as if young eagles just are up all night walking, trying to get out away, you know? And so these birds in heavily infested nests are anemic. They have lower growth. Um, they have higher cortisol, which affects cognitive development. And so in these long-lived birds that depend on learning, um, that can have a huge impact later in life. And it's associated with a higher probability of jumping from the nest before you can fly. And so that could also be attributable to that cortisol response. And so, um, you know, whether this is killing the birds right away, changing, you know, their development or affecting them developmentally to go on and have sort of long-term effects, 
Um, you know, that could be all additive um, on affecting, affecting eagles, and that's substantial. Mm. And like I said, there's many other birds that are cliff nesting birds in the NCA where we don't know. I mean, uh, Mary McFadden was working with prairie falcons, and she found very similar results as far as like anemia and lower death, uh, lower body mass and jumping from the nest early. Mm. So that's pretty significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um, worked on the 2003 prairie falcon when we were climbing nests. My first thought when someone mentioned these bugs is like, oh, like they have mites, they're like bed bugs. And it, it's easy to be dismissive and say like, people get bed bugs, birds get bed, bed bugs, what's the difference? Um, there was one nest in particular that I remember climbing to and it was, it was overhung. So I had to sort of swing myself to get to the nest. And when I swung out and grabbed the nest cliff, I could just feel this rush of these insects coming up my arm. Um, and like dozens and dozens and dozens to the point where I pushed off and and was get, immediately trying to get away from the scrape and then I thought you know there's four nestling prairie falcons that are just covered um, so we climbed that nest once um, they were too young to band and bleed so we climbed back again and when I got to the nest all the young had jumped out of the nest and were dead at the bottom so whether that's a cognitive thing or they're just so infested that the option of just getting out of there is more powerful than surviving is a is a super powerful statement and it definitely got my attention um, and it's something that I think we should look definitely more at. As you mentioned, right, I mean this is sort of something else to add to the list of like climate change impacts on raptors, right? I think so. I mean, um that's what it's like for sister species. Mm -hmm. But just think about sort of the management implications here, right? So you go through the process of doing sagebrush shrub restoration um, and getting rid of cheatgrass and working towards this vegetation shifts and restoration. You go through all of that. Well, at the same time, these bed bugs are wiping out the birds. You know, you're essentially like while your eye is on one ball, something else is happening um, to your population. And so whether that restoration would mean that I don't know those birds are healthy enough to cope with it or what, but unless you sort of keep your eye on all the the pop-up threats that are happening within the NCA, you know, that's that's what's making it risky, I think, is having shrub rabbits. You made that statement about, you know, your sort of emotional response to the question of, you know, what are your concerns for the future of the NCA and your concern being that it just turns into like a, you know, I'm trying to remember exactly how you stated it, like a barren patch of earth with nothing but ravens and crows. Although I like ravens um, and crows. But <laughs> <laughs> right, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But like you want diversity, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's just, I, I, I mean, I, I, I share that emotional response, right? Because it's like, oh, there's all these things we need to be concerned about. Mm -hmm. And almost all of them are connected to climate change. And we know that that's going to, get worse mm -hmm. like pretty significantly you know um and it's like all these issues are probably going to get worse in the coming decades and like probably new issues will pop up that we're not even thinking about you know i think like, the ones that take a smaller hammer though to knock out right mm -hmm. define shooting areas carcass pickup right. um you know enforcement uh, those are those are things that can implement quickly and have a huge effect, right? And I think that sort of like the cost benefits of what can be done, you know, treating for trick, 
Um, it's probably something that should happen for trichomoniasis, the disease that's caused through eating the, pr- the pigeons. Mm. Um, you know, that's something that's actually really straightforward and very predictable. Um, we know the territories that are most likely to have it, and we know how old the young are when they're most likely to have it. And so that's, and, it, and once you treat them, um, you know, that treatment lasts for a period, and they can get reinfected. Um, but at that one point in time, if you do treat them, the disease is knocked out. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, that's that's something you can do, mm-hmm. right? And so that, like, I think um, combined disease and parasites um, would have caused the death of almost 30% of young um, in South, South. So I'm combining a little bit some Oahe data and some NCA data, but that's a, that's a lot of young, right? Yeah. And so to me, there's some quick, like, keep things at bay while you're working on sort of the longer term fixes maybe that makes sense yeah Yeah. i I think your point about enforcement is really good too um Mm -hmm. we could put all the regulations on the books but there are very few law enforcement officers that are covering a huge area and if you tell people not to do something and there's no this is what i've been doing for generations and like we're going to continue to do it if there's no one there to say no and enforce that regulation then you've got a law on the books that no one's paying attention to and it, it's a takes a lot of money to pay full-time staff, but not nearly as much to restore 800 or 485,000 acres of sagebrush habitat, which is extremely expensive and time-consuming. Um, so that's a really good point. was our interview with Dr. Julie Heath, professor in the Department of Biological Sciences and the Raptor Research Center at Boise State University. If you'd like to learn more about this oral history project, more information can be found at birdsofpreyncapartnership.org slash dedication point. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA partnership in association with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Archives of Falconry. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, along with Steve Olsip. Our theme music is by The Great Turtle.